Hello, you're listening to Our War, the podcast that talks to real people with real stories about a real God. Each episode we split into three parts. Part number one, your childhood, your upbringing, your being a teenager, what is your family life like? Part number two is about encountering God. What happened? Where were you? How did you become part of the church? And part number three is what's changed in your life since encountering God. I am joined always by my co-host Steve. I am Luke. And we would really love if you can get in contact with us. And you can do so by emailing us at ourwalkpod at gmail.com. By searching us on Facebook, simply type in Our Walk. Or find us on Twitter at Our Walk Pod. And this week we are joined by Chris Rocky. So Steve, it's been a while. It has been a while and I have been loving life. You've been loving life without our war. Well, no, obviously not as much (laughs) as I was loving life before with our walk being a regular feature in my life, but I've still been loving life without it. But really, I want our listeners to have been missing this, so I am fully trusting that they are keen and all over this episode ready to listen to chris 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 is someone that i just met last week when i found out we'd be having him him on our podcast this week how are you chris i'm very well good it's um it's been a difficult couple of weeks but um yeah still here Still still here well especially after we were meant to record last week and you came over with a massive migraine yeah, I had um, a, a, well, I had blocked sinuses, which basically felt like somebody was kicking a football round inside my head. Um, so to be able to concentrate on this and you know focus on what I wanted to say back then was probably quite difficult. So yeah. I'm glad I'm in a better place now. And then this evening for this recording, you had a little a issue. Hiccup. Yeah, yeah we'll call it a hiccup. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's there are there are day to day challenges. I'm I'm diabetic. I have been for thirty one years, and it it has daily you know ups and downs, and is just completely unpredictable. So that was the hiccup. But you're here. You're here yeah. now. You're in the room with us. No stopping us now. Uh, well, exactly. We really hope so. It'd be really awkward if something did stop us now. Nothing's going to stop no. us now. No, we're going to hear your amazing story. You know, you, when I first met you last week, Chris, you said that this is going to be different from what we've had on the podcast before. You said it's, it can, it's going to be quite raw, that you're not really going to hold back too much on telling your story. When that was like, okay, you know, I, I don't really know anything about you. You know, I know you're a great man because you seem to have good taste in music. I just found out you were a drummer, and I love anyone who's a musician, so that's great. But, yeah, and you've seen really nice this past week. I've sort of gotten to know you and meeting you at church and stuff. So, I think yeah. we've always kind of passed, but yeah. never kind of stopped and chatted. And obviously Sarah mentioned you from doing her podcast, and, and it's just like, no, I, I keep walking past Luke, but I've never actually had... The, the the talk or the mm. introductions or anything like that and mm. um, yeah so it was it was good to just take a couple of minutes with you and and I I I gave Steve a, a little teaser of of what was gonna kind of come out and yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, so well, I'm... actually, you're one of the first people that actually has come up to us and said, let me do an episode. Mm. Normally, it's us chasing other people. Yeah. Your story's good. <laughs> We've heard it before. Share it with us. Come on. And actually, you were like, I'm doing it. Let's do it. And it was like, ah, oh, excellent. We don't have to chase people. Yeah. So, and then Luke was on holiday. Yeah. I was on holiday. <laughs> yes, I was on holiday so, in Cyprus. Lots of things have held this up, but we're here now. We're yeah. ready to go. For our listeners, um, email at rwalkpod at gmail.com. With any um, complaints about this holiday. <laughs> no, search us on Facebook at our walk or Twitter at our walk pod. Just plug them in there. There you go, listeners. I'm just okay. throwing it out into the middle. Out there. You're yeah. mental. Get in contact with us. Anyway, so Chris, like, we begin, as we said in the intro, and as we do every week, part one is all about childhood, your early years in life. So if you'd like to begin with that, just go ahead. So generally, as... As we grew up, we grew up in a kind of a little town that not everyone knew everyone, but there was quite a close-knit community. My grandfather was a shepherd, um, and we used to go out. I mean, I love the city, but, you know, growing up feeding lambs and, and herding cattle and shooting birds in the countryside and things like that, it, it's a completely different lifestyle to what, I kind of live now in the yeah. city and it's it's great I I managed to get down to Cornwall once a year and just that contrast of no noise nothing is superb it kind of takes me back to my childhood um I, I don't really remember sort of preschool but we we always sort of celebrated at primary school we always celebrated um harvest festival and and things like that and there was there was a little bit of church involvement but not enough to kind of say you know you you must go to this and you must go to that and we we went to um the same church we had the same um reverend she was a, a I was going to say she was a very nice lady reverend, but she seemed to be there for, for years. I remember her as a child. I remember her at preschool. I remember her when kind of, you know, in, into the early teen years. And she was just so friendly and so open. But that was, that was really the first kind, the, the first time I kind of experienced, um, I would say, joy but without being at a funeral or something like that and the the small church did everything it did all the weddings it did you know all the funerals and and the christenings and things like that and uh, a funny story from my christening um my my father had hold of me and as a youngster and I, I haven't been to a child's christening for a while but you get a candle yeah um so they light a candle for you and then they do the christening and my my dad my dad's his uh, his arm was getting heavy and as he swapped arms he gave me the candle and the first thing I did was stuck it straight in my mouth <laughs> oh dear put out the candle <laughs> but the whole church sort of took a really deep gasp of breath and <gasps> I just smiled and took the candle out look, look what I did <laughs> so that kind of that was my first relationship with sort of God was and we've always been um, as a family we've always been Church of England mm. and we've always kind of recognised Christian but not practising mm. okay where whereabouts was it that you grew up 
So I grew up in Andover, um, down in Hampshire, and the church, if I remember rightly, was St Michael's and All Angels. Right. Okay. So you had your mum around and your dad around? Yes. Any siblings? Or? I've got um, a brother and a sister from my mum's first marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the man she was married to used to get drunk and come home and take it out on her and she you know through whatever strength was given to her decided to leave him Mm. Um, my brother is seven years older than me my sister is ten years older than me right and so I'm I'm sort of a miracle because my my mum and dad they they tried to have me for nearly four years Um, and it it was through you know natural conception they were told in the UK that they wouldn't uh, be able to have children um, because of my father and uh, my dad was in the army and they went to Gibraltar he was posted to Gibraltar and I was conceived and born in Gibraltar simply because of the warmer climate wow It, it just Wow. Yeah, and I, I don't remember anything about Gibraltar. I flew home when I was six months old, and that was it. I was just told, you were born in the Royal Naval Hospital at the top of Gibraltar Rock. That, that's all I know. And at uh, 38, I've never been back. Mm. So I think you hold a dual passport? No, Ugh. because Gibraltar is British. British oh, is it? Oh, yes. I see, I've just shown myself up there, haven't I? Yeah. Oh. Well, edit that bit out. Yeah. No, it's um, we definitely won't. <laughs> it's the 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 rock, as they call it, through the Straits of Gibraltar, was something um, as a strategic naval advantage for the for the Queen's Royal Navy. So she's always kept hold of it. Mm. So, what was your? Let's bump forward a bit. Let's go into school year and stuff. How was your primary school experience? Primary school was. a bit difficult I was diagnosed diabetic in 1987 and then sort of bullied a bit for it because I was the only kid that was allowed to eat in class and I could be excused from lessons and things like that and kind of got into a lot of fights and um, the only trouble with that was I won a lot of the fights that I got into because my father was a championship boxer in the army Mm. And as a child, you spar with your dad and you, you, you yeah. can't. So yeah. I sort of knew how to fight. And it was, you know, you've pushed the wrong person into the wrong corner. And then I would get in trouble for um, my father taught me something which is quite brutal, but has, has saved me, I think. But he always taught me if someone looks like they're going to hit you, hit them first. Mm. Now, as a child, when you're, you know, there's four kids in front of you, you're sort of, all right, who's going to attack me? Because I'm feeling really cornered here. And Mm. you tend to lash out as as a child. Um, But I would then get into trouble because I was the one doing the hitting. And sort of, but but they started it and it was okay. always that they started it Basically no he started it the first punch so I yeah. they started it I finished it yeah. yeah um so I've I've kind of and and now I, I I if I see a fight in the street across the road I'm completely non-confrontational 
but as a as a child sort of growing up it, it was just yeah you've you've picked the wrong kid to bully mm-hmm. and then sort of moving up into secondary school was I think kids were a little bit more understanding there was there was another kid that was diabetic and we my parents had to go to the school to give um, like a, a a training lesson to the school nurse and things like that just to say have you dealt with diabetics before and things like that so diabetes was was a big part of my life from sort of seven going upwards and then I guess finished school uh, went to college and then that's kind of when the trouble started and I was I did I, I felt myself quite lucky I was uh, my dad taught me to drive mm. before I got my license so I passed my test first time mm. I saved loads of money um, we loved working in the summer and, and I worked on a, a boating lake doing canoes for mm. people and, and it was absolutely fantastic and part of growing up we we went to a place called Fairfield Manor and uh, all diabetic kids and we would do archery and canoeing and, and rock climbing and, and things like that. So sort of the educational part of that was was really fantastic. Yeah. But at that stage of my life, just nothing, you know, went once. I mean, we didn't we didn't do Harvest Festival at, at secondary school. It's just it's something that wasn't really acknowledged yet alone celebrated you know as as primary school kids you would love taking food in and you would love you know delivering it to the church and and going and being part of that festival and things like that so yeah college I was I was one of the first people to get a car um and I was I was quite popular uh probably with the ladies because I had a car um and I'd sort of, I'd lost my virginity at quite an early age um, and just because I'd grown up where there was about sort of 15 to 20 people all of the same age and we spent probably 10 to 12 years growing up with each other Mm. and getting to know each other and, and kind of things just developed between the group and... I never thought about sort of promiscuity and, and things like that. You're just, you know, you're growing up, the hormones are, are going crazy. And and when I look back on it, it, it was, it, it was a good time, but I think, you know, I could have concentrated more on college and things like that. And, but I was just having too much fun. And then, I left college and I went straight into uh, a retail job and I was a bit of a boy racer when I was young Um, and I was offered a a job in um, a car accessory shop which had just opened so I had access to alloy wheels, exhausts, stereo systems, things like that. Um, and anything I could possibly want for my car, which, mm. which was great because, you know, you get big discounts on it and, oh, we could do that for trade price. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll take two. And, yeah. and all my wages went on my car and <clears throat> and 
back when petrol was 36p a litre and things like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was the 90s, the late 90s were, were a great time. And then it, it became very apparent that there was a lot of partying happening. Mm. And that inevitably led to um, taking cocaine and taking kind of amphetamines to get you sort of going during the day. Um, And my boss at the time did it as well, Um, which was weird because he was Jewish and he ate bacon and he took cocaine and he (laughs) drank and yeah, so... How old are you around this time? I was was eighteen, just turned eighteen. Right. I think. It was ninety yeah. ninety seven I started. And I was there for two years. Mm. Um and yeah, it kind of started after after sort of that first Christmas party I think it was and, and I'd never done sort of any hard drugs through Mm -hmm. school or college or anything like that Um, and it it quickly became four or five day you know drinking and drug sessions and you were kind of Thursday Friday Saturday out maybe take the day off Sunday depending if you were working but you were going in to work still drunk still high still needing cocaine Mm. um still kind of and the weird thing was our shop was right opposite mcdonald's as well right so you'd go in in the morning you know have a have a line of coke and then go and get a bacon sandwich from mcdonald's it is one of the most weirdest things i've ever thought about it's like hold on you know just why am i why am i craving oh mcdonald's is right there and yeah, I I look back now and I kind of, I think of it as I just wanted to be part of the team. Yeah. Uh, and I, there, was, there was no real peer pressure there. It, it was just to be part of everything. So, oh, yeah, I'll give that a go. I guess that's peer pressure in a way, though, but not from anyone but yourself. Mm. You know, I, I've kind of felt like this, not to the extent of taking drugs or or partying or anything, but you want to sort of, like you say, be part of the team. So you sort of think to yourself, well, I should be like them then. You know, I should put, I should take these drugs. I should, I should do this. I should do everything what they're doing mm. just to sort of feel the same. But that's not coming from them necessarily. That's coming from yourself. You put that upon yourself and be like, yeah, no, I've got to do this just to... Yeah. Sort of be fun. Or it might just be a thing of temptation where it's like, they're having fun, you know. They look like they're enjoying life. Yeah. Yeah, I want some of that. There was definitely <clears throat> I think I agree with you, there was definitely some kind of pressure, but not, you know, when you're younger from all your mates going, Oh, have you had sex yet? That kind of thing yeah. where it it was very ripe in the sort of early nineties, but that kind of threw everything completely off my my lifestyle my habits um my diabetes was like beyond out of control and i think my kind of my life was spiraling and 
unfortunately it took a, a, a real major event to bring it to a stop. And then in August of 98, um, I, I just, I had a random toothache. Mm. And it, it was kind of really strange. And I remember going to work on Monday, um, just complaining about having toothache and didn't feel very good. The Tuesday I had off of work because I was in absolute agony. Um, by the Wednesday afternoon, I was in a coma. Right. A coma, jeez. What had happened was one of... My wisdom teeth, instead of growing up, they were growing down and they were impacted. And it was pushing on another tooth which had an abscess on it. Well, on the Tuesday afternoon, a very clever dentist pulled the tooth and burst the abscess straight into the bloodstream. And because there was... um, Diabetes is is an autoimmune disease, so my immune system was shot to pieces. The... The rest of it was just out of control anyway, and by the time, by the time I'd got to hospital, the last thing I remember, um, the surgeons saying, because my mum had, had taken me to the hospital, and the last thing I remember the surgeon saying was, um, "Let's get this boy out of his pain," and I woke up three weeks later. Three weeks. I had. Um, Four operations in six days to save my life. Um, I, I bear the scars every day. It, it, it's something that I, I look in the mirror every day and, and I think I might not have come through this. My parents um, took pictures of me simply because they didn't know whether I was going to wake up or not. And I... I do it occasionally just get the pictures out and and have a look and sort of I'm connected up to about six different machines there's wires and tubes and everything coming out of me and and I I really thought that that was it Mm. Um, and that was a month after my 18th birthday wow it feels like a lot happened there in a short space of time. It went south very quickly. Um, I, th- I think probably if I, if you hadn't thrown the diabetic element in there, I, I don't know what would have happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, just generally from a kind of mindset point of view and, and where my life was going. Um, but while I was in a coma, that's pretty much where I first met God. One question, probably going to be a quick answer, I'm just wondering, when you, going back to when you say that you were, you know, partying, taking drugs and drinking a lot and stuff with your colleagues and workplaces and stuff, were your family aware of this or was this something that you kept sort of secret from your family? It definitely wasn't common knowledge mm. of what I was taking and what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I think um, my mum sort of knew I was drinking. Mm -hmm. My dad's been very kind of... I don't know how to describe him really without him sounding like a monster. 
Um, he's always been the breadwinner of the family. He he can't cook. He'd he'd burn boiling water. You know he he used to stick baked beans in the microwave and then burn the toast because he was watching the microwave. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's a very manly man. Right. Um, he fell off the back of a lorry about. 10 years ago broke four ribs and was back at work the next day right he's he's that kind of so any kind of illness with me was sort of oh well you can deal with it mm. um so it, it and he kind of i think he was just mum does all the worrying mm-hmm. and dad just kind of is there and gets on yeah, yeah. just plods along and, mm-hmm. and sort of does whatever really but I mean I don't I don't blame them for what happened at all I I did everything off my own back mm-hmm. I, I wasn't you know we didn't have there was no sort of problems or trauma in in my childhood it, we played outside we you know mm-hmm. our our curfew was the street lights things like that it, it was it was great um football on the field with the lads and and things like that so there was no kind of it, it was just like when i when i got through college i, I just felt set free mm-hmm. but the the freedom kind of nearly killed me yeah um and yeah it there was no there was no trigger there was no catalyst but i kept you know apart from i just said oh, i'm staying at so-and-so tonight and you know crushing at riches tonight or and they just but my mum always used to say if you weren't diabetic i wouldn't worry about you so much mm-hmm. but she would always say you know are you okay are you? yeah and you just give a blase kind of yeah i'm fine yeah. So, you know, you said you were like uh, sleeping around and partying and stuff, and you mentioned earlier that your parents have kind of been Church of England styly. Mm. So, had they tried to impart any traditional Christian values, like you know, for example, don't get drunk, don't have sex before marriage, all that kind of thing, or was it kind of very like soft touch kind of? Um, no, there was no teachings or any kind of thing whatsoever I think I I feel like their religion was a tick box exercise right you know um, my father was christened our our whole family was kind of Church of England so it was just what's your religion C of E Um, so then I knew I'd been christened, so I'd always ticked. If there was a religion box, I'd always tick Church of England and, and thought to myself that, yeah, I'm... And I didn't, I didn't really associate it with Christianity as a connection. For me, it was just, oh, is the... the I thought the head of the Church of England was the head of... The, you know, it was very confusing, yeah. but, but there was no... There were no rules, there was no discipline, there was no, um, there was no structure. And we were, I mean, you know, we, we were brought up better for it. There's no secrets in our family. We've always 
been very open, very liberal mm. about, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. It is one of those things that if if it needs to be discussed in our family, it is openly talked about. Mm. So there was there was never any kind of scared part of me that said, I, I can't talk to my mum about it. I probably thought I was protecting her mm. by just... No, so it wasn't a sense of, oh, I'm not sure I should be doing that. It was more like, oh, this doesn't... I think at that point, I didn't even realise that those rules existed. Right. I was kind of of vaguely aware of Christianity, you know, the the principles, if you like, sort of no sex before marriage and, and, you know, just the kind of basics, but... I don't know. We were just we were just free to to be ourselves, and I'm quite happy now that the way I was brought up, you know, I'm not a bank robber. I've, you know, got no criminal record and and that kind of thing. It, it just that was instilled in us in a very don't do bad. Yeah. Um, and and a lovely little saying that I love is um don't steal if there's a direct victim. Yeah. I mean, it's a generalisation. <laughs> do, do you get that, though? Say it again? Don't steal yeah. if there's a direct victim. So, like, it's okay to steal a pen from a shop, but not a TV from okay. someone's house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I've never but heard that before. Never. Yeah, it's one of those... It, I think now, as I'm learning, it relates to do unto others. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I kind of but we'll talk about what I'm learning later. We can do. In fact, let's stop here. Let's have a break. Let's have a break. End part one. End part one, which was a fun part one. Definitely. And then we'll go to part two, which is generally what happens at the end of part one. All right, we're back. You're back. It's all good. So, Chris, part two. You hinted at it a little bit earlier when you were in the midst of your coma. You mentioned a certain little first encounter. Do you want to elaborate on that point now? So, being um, in an induced coma, um, I, I admittedly was on very high doses of morphine. Um, I was completely what they would describe out of it my parents uh, came to my bedside most days and my mom at this point had said she had prayed over me um didn't mention dad obviously because i don't know where his beliefs lie but mum said she used to hold my hand and she when she talked to me she could feel me squeezing her hand that kind of thing but there was absolutely no possible way of me recognising my surroundings, where I was. I spent the first uh, week in intensive care and then the second and third weeks in a high dependency unit. But halfway through the second week, I think... Um, they described me as the wellest ill person. Okay. So I was transferred to another hospital because they needed the space. Mm-hmm. And I was transferred down to um, uh, Hasler Royal Noble Hospital in Portsmouth. 
So at this point, completely under, no idea what's going on. Um, I I was told later on we had a police escort to get me down there, and it, it, you know, awake me would have loved this. It would have been absolutely fantastic. But while while I was under, and I don't know at what point this was, whether it was day, whether it was night, I had no concept of time. Um, but I remember seeing and having a conversation with exactly like we are now um, a man that had no face he was stood in an area which was brightly lit I remember kind of the lights sort of above him sort of twinkling or sparkling um, but we we had a conversation about giving up and he told me not to give up right he told me to fight because um and i don't remember the the, the exact word he said but i remember it as somebody wants you on this earth mm. and that was kind of very strange to me because when i woke up um my mum said to me how long do you think you've been under and I I still had the tracheostomy tube in my throat and I couldn't talk so I wrote on um, the back of you know one of those trays that they put the injections in uh -huh. and stuff the, the paper trays I wrote on the back three days and she said to me you've been here you've been here three weeks and I, I just completely you know lost it and, and was like I, I don't remember any of it mm. but I I randomly said now I because he was to me because he had no face I saw what I remember as dark skin yeah. so I said to him uh, I said to mum I said where do, wh what happened where where were we and she sort of explained what the timelines and what had happened and the operations and everything else and, and I said I must talk to um, I must thank the coloured gentleman that I spoke to down down at this other hospital and she said what do you mean and I told the same story and and she and then they were saying well what do you remember and I described the room like I was sat in it mm -hmm. And doctors and nurses going, looking through notes, going, was he ever awake? Where did he? Yeah. And it was it was completely impossible for me to know where I was, i.e., where the windows were placed, where my how many beds were in the room, where the door was, where the little counter where they keep the drugs was. It there was it was completely and physically impossible for me to know what that room looked like, because on the way down to Hazlitt and on the way back to Salisbury District Hospital, I, I was still in my induced coma. Yeah. So I don't remember the ambulance ride, I don't, I don't remember anything. But I remember this conversation like it was just two guys chatting. Mm. Um, and we contacted Hazlitt and we were trying to describe 
the person that I'd spoken to and I don't remember any sort of uniform or and he wasn't wearing robes it, it wasn't so and I was they were just like well we can't find anyone of that description that even works in the high dependency ward yeah so it's like I, I still question it to this day who was that person some people have suggested it was my spirit guide some people have suggested it could have been God some people have suggested it could have been Jesus some people have suggested other things which I don't believe I was hallucinating it when you have hallucinations you don't have a regular man to man conversation no when you hallucinate, you hallucinate, you know, things of wild grandeur that's that it, people yeah. go, well, that's a load of baloney, isn't it? Yeah. And, but to describe that experience to a T was just, was just a revelation to me. Mm. And, I mean, when, when I finally did come out of hospital and I went back to work at the same place, and they had been covering my shifts and still held my job open and um, still paying me. Um, and, and, but that encounter changed my life. Yeah. And this year will be 20 years drug free. Wow. That's awesome. So you, that was your first encounter? As you've deduced it, mm. I guess at the time it wasn't entirely clear what it was. No, not at all. But there was something from that that you just thought, okay, I need to change, you know, yeah. the bad stuff in my life. I need to stop it. And I think it was, it was only about three or four days after that encounter that I woke up. Right. So it was very quickly, mm. you know, led on your back for two weeks and then having this encounter and being given the strength to say, I I'm not ready to die. Mm. It's not my time. Mm. And that was it. My fight just from there went through the roof. And it was like, get me out of this place, get me back into the world, get, you know, this is, this is my purpose. Somebody wants me here. Mm. So how did we get you from middle of coma experience thing to here in this church being Christian now, how many more times, like, so you went from there, how did you meet God again and kind of acknowledge that this time it was definitely God and you kind of knew it for sure? I think over the years, I hadn't, hadn't questioned what had happened. No, nothing made me think, was I mad? Mm-hmm. I knew what I saw, I believed what I saw, and that's what I tell people. And, you know, I let them make their own deductions and, and make their own assumptions, but I know what I saw. Um, and then I, I found myself just randomly talking to God. Not... Um, we had a really good discussion at cell group last night actually about prayer and you know talking to God all the time and, and I just I I found myself more and more often saying God give me the strength to do this or or please God and 
you know, I, I, the, I think the first time I physically prayed uh, was when um, my niece uh, died of cot death. And that was the first time I kind of, I came home and, and there was more cars outside the house than usual. Mm. And I sort of, something's, it's the wrong time of day, something's, something's going on. And I, I came in and mum said, Stacy died of cot death this morning. And I, I, I was so confused. And I, I remember saying to her, what do you want me to do? I don't know what to do. And um, she said, you can cry if you want. And I, I just kind of wandered away in a, in a complete and utter daze. And that was the first time I physically fell to my knees and put my hands together, bowed my head and, and did a, a, a physical prayer. Mm. Um, and then I, I just, over over the years, probably... 10, 12 years, and growing up I was in and out of hospital all the time with my diabetes. Um, I've not been in hospital because of that for at least 15 years now. Um, so that part of, you know, changing your life had, had gone on from that. And then in 2013, I, I woke up, um, and I was blind in my left eye, completely yeah. blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sarah... That's so freaky. What, you just woke up like that? Yeah, Sarah was with me at the time, and we were going to go to uh, Longley or some... And I said, we're not going anywhere. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, I can't see. Um, and she kind of said... Well, what do you mean? I said, my, my left eye is, is completely black. I, I cannot see anything out of it at all. Um, and it turned out I'd, I'd had a bleed in the night so severe that it had filled my eye with blood. And what it does is, because light reflects off the back of your eye, it, it just... So I, I, I couldn't see anything. And the, the weird thing was, you, you'd think that your eye would be red, yeah. but it's not. You're... you're the front layer of your eye is actually the white bit is actually quite thick, so it's all internal. And it's just people looking at me going, "Well, your eye looks perfectly normal." And they're like, "Yeah, I can't see out of it." Mm. Um, and then that was that was another time that I I prayed, and like I, I don't understand. And and when I went to I went to the eye clinic at the hospital and, the, and they couldn't tell me what had happened or, and I was just like, what, was, what am I supposed to do? I'm still in a hospital at an emergency eye clinic and you can't tell me what's going on. Um, and I got an appointment with the specialist clinic about a week later and they told me what had happened and this, this that and the other. And for safety's sake, I stopped driving because I didn't want you know, something to happen and then someone go, well, he's only got one eye and things like that. But it it turned out it was actually just a very simple procedure to fix my eye. Um, But I was, I was blind in my left eye for about 10 months. Wow. Wow. Um, Oh, this was also, (laughs) this was also two days. I just got my new job. 
and I was due to start on the Monday and I went in on Monday and I went, right, I'm here, but I have to warn you, I've just lost sight in my left eye. That was on the Saturday morning. I woke up on the Saturday morning and I was just like, this is, this is terrible. This is, you know, I can't, won't be able to do my job. But luckily, um, everything was all white. And I, t- I turned up on the Monday and I, the, the, the guy that interviewed me, Neil, I said to Neil, I said, you're not going to believe what has happened to me over the weekend. And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, I'm blind in my left eye. Can't see a thing. Um, and and what, what the prayers have given me is, is a positive attitude on everything. Yeah. And I, I, I don't see a lot of negatives in life. I always try and see the positive part of it. And I was sort of saying to my consultant, it's like, okay, so you can fix this. They're like, yeah, we'll have to put you on a waiting list. And that waiting list took seven months, but it was going, okay, you can fix this. Um, and yeah, it, it was, it was a really difficult kind of, 2000, 2014, 2013 into 2014, but yeah, you kind of adapt. Yeah. Oh, you imagine having both your eyes for mm. most of your life, and then suddenly, bang! You don't have it for ten months. It's a bit yeah. thrown well out, I guess. It was, um, but it was scary as well because yeah, it would be. It's you know, I think a lot of blind people say they'd rather be born blind than have their sight all their life and have it taken away yeah and for the first time I'd experienced exactly what they were talking about it's like uh, and and like just randomly try it if anyone listening wants to try this just close your eye and try and walk around the house and just see what you bump into and see because you'll be you'll be fascinated at what you cannot see your field of vision is thrown off completely and I'd, I'd find myself walking into people in the street and then turning around and apologising because I couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, oh, you just walked into me. I was like, I, I, I don't know you're there. Yeah, actually, you know, happened to me wearing... today, actually. Oh. Well, I, not that I lost my sight in one of my eyes, but <laughs> I was work, at work and then I was just rubbing my eye. I got something in it. So I, I was just rubbing it. And I didn't know where my other colleague was. And then, I, you know, I'm rubbing it for about a minute or so. And I'm just like, oh, you know. And I open my eye again, and he's right there. It's like, oh, I didn't know you were there. It's like, oh, yeah, I've just been sitting here. It's like, oh, yeah. Did you wear an eye patch to make it obvious you were blind in one eye? Um, no. <laughs> right, no, not at all. No. Did Didn't it think it'd be you? cool, you know, it's like, well, now I've got a reason to look like a pirate. Well, weirdly, when I had the operation to fix it done, yeah. I had an eye patch, and I didn't want an NHS eye patch. And I found this amazing American website that does about 150 different designs of eye patch. So I had this really cool eye patch oh, on, you know, and people yeah. going, you've only got one eye. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm just in recovery. Yeah. But it, it was great. And, and yeah, the talk like a pirate jokes and things like oh, that yeah. was, was Lol. brilliant. Um, so can I, I'm just going to jump in. Um, when can you pinpoint a time where God became real to you? Yeah. Um, last year, it the work. I just just been promoted at work. There was 
a lot of pressure to perform on the job and there was no support at all from the senior management and trying to run a team and learn a new contract and everything else it it was complete just chaos and i think in my first my first 2 months i was doing 30 to 40 hours overtime a month just to make sure that the contract was looked after mm-hmm. um and i was i was essentially doing it on my own because i mean the guys it's that hierarchy you know i didn't want to bother the guys with it i tried to delegate as much as possible to take the pressure off myself but there was still the pressure up above and I mean, Sarah, I've known Sarah for six years and she'll attain to the fact that I don't talk very openly. Mm-hmm. So even even this for me is, is, you know, just a revelation for me because I, I feel like I'm a burden. Mm-hmm. Let's correct that. I felt... Yeah, yeah, much better. I felt like I was a burden. I don't want to tell you my troubles because... You, you don't need to hear my troubles. I can deal with those. And that's how I dealt with things. And then Sarah was going through um, a really, really difficult time with Cody's father. And I, I came along to Lifespring and that, that first worship I I I felt something. I don't know whether it was God's presence, the the Holy Spirit, the you know Jesus Himself, but it was so overwhelming. Mm. Um, I I cried, but it was tears of relief. It was tears of joy. It it was it was tears of freedom. It it just. I mean I. I felt like I was having palpitations. It, it, it just, I was, I was fluttering everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was uh, one of these days. Um, James likes to ask people to commit to yeah. Jesus or to recommit. And I remember putting my hand up, like the first time. It just, just I, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know well, what, what's going on in here. What's going on in here? But I remember putting my hand up, and I was like. And then James said, for those who put their hand up, and, and the, guy on, the guy behind me put his hand on my shoulder and said, are you all right? Do you, do you want to go down the front? And I, I just, I'm still in floods of tears. And yeah. I'm just like, I, I'm just going to sit here for a while because I don't really know what's going on. And, and another guy sort of came across to me and he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I, I need to do this in my own time. And... Like that was, that was the first time. Even though I'd come as support for someone else, I just felt all the pressures of of everything that I'd been doing, release for me, mm-hmm. and I, I, I wasn't expecting it. I, I wasn't coming to church to, you know, be graced by God or. 
I don't know, it, but it hit me like a steam train. Uh, and I've never felt anything like that in, in my life. Yeah. It, it, even when I had that encounter, I had that slight euphoria as if, you know, everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't consciously aware of it. And then I, I would... I would come not every Sunday, but kind of when I wasn't busy or, or when I needed it. Mm. Um, and I found myself talking to God a little bit more and just mm. consciously, as Sarah talked about God, as I met people in the church and how they mm. were sort of dealing with things. And last year, God probably pulled me through a lot of things which I probably wouldn't have had the strength to do yeah. if he hadn't been there. Yeah. And then it sort of, I, I just, I would obviously support Sarah with, with everything she was going through, but I was, I had started my own journey mm. separately. All right, let's stop. Let's stop, because I can feel like this is moving into part three territory. So yeah. we're going to stop here. Do you have any more questions, though, Steve, for part two? Oh, no. Relating to do you? No, I don't. No, I'm just asking, oh. just to make him yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm getting everything two. out then, that's yeah. okay. <laughs> have a breather. Pause, Chris. And we're going to end part two right here and come back in part three and find out more. And we're back. So, Chris, you can unpause now, but I'll just say, you know, from part two, we learned about your life after the coma and moments of prayer and stuff like that, moments in life that made you sort of fall to your knees and call out to God. And then finally coming into church and feeling overwhelmed with this strange feeling, this presence and stuff. So since that moment, what has changed in your life for the better? So... For for the better, um, mm. everything really my my outlook my my dependency on on the Bible and and the readings that and the, the kind of I use this word a lot, which is revelation and and you know um, like everything is new to me and. Um, Josh Gardner to kind of says to me, he loves hearing me talk um, because I am discovering things that he has a Christian all his life may have missed mm. because I'm looking for new roots. I'm looking for new experiences in the Bible. And it was kind of, I started coming to Lifespring more and more and doing events and and things like that and and then early early this this year i i found a strength in god to leave my job where all the stress was um and it was making me ill mm. so I took, you know, I prayed heavily over what to do and, you know, the, the, the strength to physically say to my workplace that I need to look after myself. Um, and I knew personally that I could do that with God's help. 
So I, t I made that decision and I think that was the first time also that I learned to trust in God mm. um, and God's timing and God's plan. Um, and then shortly after that, I'd, I'd been talking to um, uh, Johnny Novak about joining his, his cell. Um, and then unfortunately, um, his father passed and, um, you know, he had decided to, to not uh, take kind of new additions. And then somebody put me in touch with John Hollands. Um, and so I'm, I'm now part of John Holland's cell and it is, it is the most fascinating and educational and open group of kind of men and, and their knowledge between them and, and Stephen Lucas who is you know this great ambassador for the church yeah. and, and and John who is a font of knowledge I'm, I'm sure you know because yeah you well John's him. my boss so, yeah, yeah so. um and then you've got Malcolm who is old hat old school mm. and and but he's so just open and honest and then you've got kind of the younger guys in me Josh Pete Greenlaw Julian that, that are all Sort of, but the first thing I said to um, first thing I said to John Hollands was, um, I said, uh, I, I warn you, I said I'm new to this and I have questions, and the, 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 it, I signed myself up straight away. And John Hollands, he said, good, so do we. Mm -hmm. And I find each week I go to sell, I learn something new, and you know I. I discover something new and and things like that, but it was it's about three days after that first cell group that I completely gave my life to Jesus. Yeah, and I didn't again because I'm this I'm quite a private person. I mean, my close friends are the people who know me really, really well, and and I. I have a small circle of friends, but those people I trust with my life and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So, you know, to openly tell them that, you know, I'm Christian and, and I find myself fighting for Christian beliefs and, and things like that and just learning and it, it just... So this is the bit I said that I would get confused with because I just, I have so many thoughts about it all. And, you know, I, I bought myself a Bible and, and I find myself highlighting it and things like that. And, and just um, the Bible app as well. It, it just, just to search things. And, and I often search for you know passages and verses based around one word or one phrase or, or things like that and it it kind of guides me through and i i kind of agree that you know pastor neville's always said this is hard it's not you know give your life to jesus and he'll take care of it it's, it's not how it works and and i can only encourage people who are listening who maybe have problems with kind of prayer or what to say or, or just talk from the heart mm -hmm. and whatever you say nothing is is too absurd to pray for um 
and it, it's just trust in God and trust that he's listening and when you when you finally realize that he's listening you're just so free but it's still you know it's still a relationship and that takes commitment and that takes work on both sides and I, I just I love it it excites me you know the guys will sing a certain song in worship and I'm back in floods of tears again because I feel it and I never thought a year ago that this would be me now. So Chris, in part four we usually ask uh, people uh, what they want prayer for in life. And we'll get to that, and this is probably going to lead into that. But I, I've just got one question. Because you're such, not really new, you know, to being a Christian and stuff, but you're at that beginning stage of your walk with yeah. God. What things in your walk with God have you, have you got anything coming up in that? Anything that you're excited for that? you may be thinking about like baptisms or something like that is it well, you know what is there what, what, is there anything planned i i sort of forgot to mention that and i'm mm. so glad you reminded me of that because that's probably one of the most exciting things to come and i i have asked john holland's if he'll baptize me oh, right, awesome. and he he absolutely 100 percent yes it it would be an awesome pleasure for him um and i've already kind of bothered neville with it and said yeah. that do you do you get baptism requests i, I don't want to do it kind of on my own it's yeah, yeah. nice when you know there's a big group of of people you know really really committing mm. and i think for me that and I'm actually reading a, a Bible plan at the moment that says the next step is, is baptism. Um, and it's, it's teaching me why we need to be baptised. And I think for me that will be the, the clear out of everything I did when I was younger, kind of it, just any sin and, and just to be completely refreshed. Mm. And that really is you know, probably what I most look forward to yeah. um, towards the middle or the end of this year whenever they decide to do it. Yeah. But that's going to be a very exciting day. That is wicked. Mm. That's awesome. Well, we're glad, glad that Luke asked that question. question. Luke, that wasn't planned, by the way, listeners. Like, genuinely, I, before this, I was like, I've got a question, but I'm not going to ask you. Yeah, I'm going to ask you when we... Uh, start again you know if you could see that. chris's face when you asked that his face lit up and he pointed at him <laughs> yeah. going yes that's what it you've was you've done it yes. I, so, I knew nothing i, I so, said i would know. get excited about god <laughs> and that it would just go completely off on tangents yeah. and that's kind of how i feel when i talk to god it, it just i'm so freed and I, I i can i can say what i like to god and and god's not going to judge me and and but yeah, I, I just completely forgotten about that, and mm. even even it is part of my walk, if you like. But um, yeah, I, I will I will be probably incomprehensible that day because I will just be 
focusing on getting it all out and, and that will be just raw emotion but also pure joy well, that's great I look forward to recording your baptism video <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to be there so, so as we do with every every person we have on that shares their walk with us we do end on a prayer request something we can pray for something listeners can pray for so is there anything in particular that you would like us all to pray for you um there is at the moment um sarah's nan uh, doreen has been admitted to royal barks with um a heart issue so i'd just like to pray for her strength um her resolve she is a non-christian um she believes that people praying over her might be silly she's quite stubborn but an absolutely gloriously lovely lady and we just we wish her well and and once we find out more about it and of of course just family friends my new brothers and sisters that i've met through the church and um yeah and the baptism and the baptism For to that, come yeah. and to continue <laughs> learning i guess and yeah and i think we're all on a journey so you know don't don't be a don't be afraid to pray for your friends, your family, just and yourself. People often forget themselves. Mm. Um, you know what, I think seeing you and how excited you've been about your baptism and everything, it's kind of it can very easily re enthuse us older heads and older Christians who have kind of been around for a while. It, to see that excitement, it's like, oh actually why aren't I like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you said earlier, Josh, who's in your cell group, you know, he says that he loves listening to you talk, and I can't yeah. get what he means now. I mean, to be fair, you're a great speaker anyway. I, I find, you know, just from listening to you now. But yeah, I kind of get what he means about the sort of new Christian thing. You're looking at everything with this sort of new uh, perspective mm. to it all and stuff, which is Yeah, I th- I th- the first time he sort of said that to me, I was sort of, oh, Josh, that, <laughs> that means quite a lot. because, But then... You know, do do Christians get into the habit of what they you know normally pray for and what they normally look for in the Bible and and that kind of thing? And and I just I have I had questions about everything before I I I joined the church and and, and now I just. I, I direct the focus on the questions. Mm-hmm. And then when I come out with these things at sell, they were like, I haven't thought about that for years, or I haven't done this for years, or... But yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting. Good. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for giving your story no problem. on this uh, episode of Our Walk. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you, to get to know you more, and I look forward to getting to know you even more in the coming weeks, months, and stuff like that. Um, yeah you can always find our walk and contact us on the Facebook page you just search our walk our Twitter is at our walk pod or you can email us at our walk pod at gmail.com my name's Luke this is Steve hello and this is Chris thanks for listening and goodbye goodbye goodbye